0: I'm Michael McClintock, with live coverage of the funeral of Selena Meyer, America's first woman president. While she may have only served one full term, Meyer is fondly remembered for briefly freeing what was once known as the nation of Tibet, as well as for permanently overturning same-sex marriage. The former president passed away earlier this week at the age of 76 or possibly 77, or according to some sources, 75.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. If you're a comedy nerd like I am, you know Matt Walsh is one of the four founders of the Upright Citizens Brigade, along with Matt Besser, Ian Roberts, and Amy Poehler. He's also a two-time Emmy nominee for playing Mike McClintock on Veep, which just wrapped up its seventh and final season on HBO last month. This month, Walsh and UCB are bringing the 21st annual Dell Close Marathon, three days of some of the best improv shows you'll ever see, to Los Angeles after 20 years in New York. I thought this would be the perfect opportunity to look back at what has been easily the most influential comedy institution of this century, with the man who has been there from the beginning. Here's my conversation with the great Matt Walsh. This is the last
0: laugh. Oh, yeah, yeah. During oh our God. last episode. Press tour and this was mike's hat for the bit and oh yeah I, I lose hats so much i just turned it into and i wiped out the cbs so i'm not promoting it with a, with a <laughs> blue highlighter
1: i don't think that worked very well
0: no but at least it's it's prettier it's definitely prettier <laughs> and then my wife hates it so i'll wear this until i lose it <laughs> <laughs>
1: So yeah, I mean, I I definitely want to talk about the Dell Close marathon, but I figured we could start uh, with a little Veep talk since Great. we just uh, wrapped up a uh, couple weeks ago. Um, so how are you? How are you feeling now that it's uh, officially in the in the past?
0: Um, it doesn't feel in the past because I'm going in next week to do DVD commentary again, Ooh. my second DVD, <laughs> and then uh, so I still see people. I saw Dave the other day, but the whole show, of course, is done. And I've said it a million times. I think cried my eyes out in December. A lot of farewells, a lot of hugs, mm-hmm. a lot of meaningful uh, thank yous and gratitude. And then just kind of moved on a little bit. Yeah. But, yeah, it's it's a wonderful show. And it, it uh, I'm so happy that the seventh season was so strong. I mean, generally yeah. people reviewed it really well. And I loved how uh, the writers – Dave and Julia, everyone uh, got to sew it all up together in that last episode. I thought that was one of the more interesting episodes of television I've been a part
1: of. Yeah, absolutely. The finale I thought was incredible. I mean, what yeah. did you when you got that script? Uh, what were your sort of initial reactions to it? The things,
0: uh, insane and like the the time jump. Like it's it's nice to be able to not worry about spoilers right now because so much yeah. of the press yeah. you we were can talk about behind. it. Yeah. <laughs> It was wonderful to – and crazy to see like 24 years later in a script, in a Veep script. It was just so fun. I'm like, oh my god, they're really – that's a great concept. And it was obviously exciting to sit in the room occasionally. I would sit in the writer's room and hear them pitch ideas for what the future could be. And it's just – it was really exciting to have that kind of uh, ending in the final episode. And then, of course, the sort of betrayal of Gary was sort of the hugest you know, awful thing. I think they knew – she had to do something awful to get the prize and get away with it. Mm-hmm. And so I think they designed like, what's the awful thing. And I think it was like throwing Gary under the bus or putting Gary in prison. And, uh and then there's just moments that I loved from the get go that are small moments, but just are wonderfully written and created moments. Like when Hugh Laurie comes in and Selena has thrown the me too uh bomb Mm-hmm. To the aide he's having sex with or his chief of staff and that's blown up in his face and his career and uh, certainly his campaign are over and he's hot and knowing their history and he comes in the room and she's brokering with – I forget who. She's brokering her presidential run with some delegate. Yeah. And she he's like, what the hell? What kind of person? What the fuck are you? Like he's shocked (laughs) at how evil she is. And the ending moment of that is he he goes crazy and she lays into him a little bit, but she's very controlled. And then she goes back to her meeting and she just looks up at him and takes a moment and then just like Mm -hmm. ushers him away with his hand and say, you can go. Like that (laughs) moment I've witnessed the the way power shifts in a room and you – are the last person to realize yeah. that the power has shifted. Mm-hmm. It was just so well constructed. So I think of moments like that. Yeah. That's a very uh, deep dive on a small moment, but stuff like that makes me happy.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and your character Mike McClintock, uh, we in the twenty four years later is now a, a, a network anchor, kind of a, a yeah. Walter Cronkite uh, type uh, <laughs> presence. Yeah. So do you think that's a fitting end for uh, for for him? You know, in the, in the failing upwards uh, sense. In the
0: failing upwards sense, yeah, I think he uh, has always been good in front of like the microphone. Like he does have that talent. He can. Uh, tell stories to the media basically mm-hmm. or be, and then he learns to be part of the media. Uh, so it is a logical progression for him. And I think it's like, it's a, I think it's a big success for him. Of course, yeah. like to be Walter Cronkite, that was, I think he did not see that coming.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you and the cast, uh, reunited on, uh, on Colbert, uh, Pretty recently, like around when the when the finale aired, um, so that was you would you would wrapped at that point a, a while back. So what was that like to kind of get back together and actually in character do a sketch, uh, with with Colbert? Yeah, that
0: was kind of interesting. The process came back right away, like the sort of professional and uh, obsessive work to comedy because Dave was there and Julia was there and mm-hmm. we were all there and uh, bringing Colbert into our process because he was a real fan. I think was neat to see like everybody just coming together to serve a joke. Like everybody is really good at their game and it's sort of fluid. And so it was neat to see that uh, process that happens on Veep every day to also happen in the late night writer's room with the host of that show, Stephen, who I've known forever since Chicago, who's a famous person in his own right, but also a geeked out, crazy fan of Mm, our show. Yeah. And then to see this sort of professional machine gel was pretty fun.
1: Wait a minute! I know you. You're that guy with the uh, with that show, the, the Colbert Report,
0: Coco Report. That's the yeah, one I just no, said. No, I don't do that anymore. That was just a self involved character I played, like you people. No, what? On my Earth, I now host the Late Show on CBS. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not kidding. I do. You're telling me CBS hired Where's Waldo's pedophile brother? H. Carson, another 85 pounds of generic white male mediocrity that shops at the lesbian warehouse. That's not a very nice. Name to say. I mean, seriously, you look like Lennerman took the least funny dump of his life into a child suit. <laughs> Two points, Leonidor! Madam President, please. My America is in danger. Madam President, please, my America.
0: Okay, that's not what I sound like. That's not what I sound like. Don't, if you keep doing this here, eventually. If you might... keep doing this too.
1: <laughs> Maybe we should listen to him.
0: You people are sick. You are the most amoral bunch of self-centered monsters I have ever met. And I've interviewed Bradley Cooper. You know what? Forget it. I'm leaving.
1: You can go to hell. I'm a big fan. Great show. What show?
0: Live from New York. It's Saturday night. Mike?
1: Yeah, so you you uh, you crossed paths with him in, in Chicago. Did you ever did you work together in those in those no, days? No, he
0: was probably like on the main stage or the ETC when I was just coming into comedy. Mhm. With, he was like a performer with Amy Sedaris and Paul Donello and Mitch Rouse and probably maybe Dave Pasquese. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was like that era. But I've always crossed paths with him at The Daily Show. He was a very nice dude at The Daily Show. He was there when I started. And I've seen him, you know, in various. I did a episode of his TV show, Strangers with Candy. Mm-hmm. So I've always seen him in New York and stuff like that. And he improvised with us when we first landed in. Uh, New York He is one of the first guys who was looking to do improvs on Sunday. Oh, wow. Nights. Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> someone's singing, Someone singing outside that, that that's never happened before. Uh, so before we move on from veep, I do want to get your reaction to the, the big news of yesterday, which was, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders stepping down as a, uh, as a former, uh, press secretary yourself. Uh, what do you, what do you think about that?
0: Uh, my, yeah, my when spicer was in there people are like oh my god he's mike McClintock." and uh mike was bad at his job before spicer came around, <laughs> <laughs> first of all so we weren't impre- we weren't impersonating spicer but i i say the same thing is like you have to quit your job if you work for a terrible administration and they're lying all the time and they're corrupt like at some point i understand grabbing the brass ring for three months to get that job because you've been kicked around dc but after a while like you sell- I mean, you have to quit that. Otherwise, you're you're an awful person. Mm-hmm. So good riddance to Sarah. I mean, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but you 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 hung in there way too long. Would be my thing to her. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah, it's a terrible person. You're she working for she did it. say
1: she's never she's never been prouder of anything she's done than uh, than working for Trump. So I, I'm, I'm not sure she if she, <sighs> if, she uh, if she feels the way that you that you're imagining. No, I guess she serves <laughs> that. Adi- I, it's
0: beyond. Well i'm just i have my view of what common mm-hmm. sense is, so mm-hmm. I guess I'll have to sit down with her and she'll have to tell <laughs> me why that's a valuable uh agenda yikes, <laughs> I don't even know what's happening out of that white house
1: um what do you what do you feel like you learned about uh politics and maybe that job in particular uh by by playing this character um in terms of how the communication in in the political world works uh, I
0: think it humanized it i think there was, uh, I think there's like, you know, a blind faith in D.C. like that existed in, you know, uh, the West Wing, Aaron Sorkin, like mm-hmm. faith in this American idealism. And then there's also the frightening thing we're learning now, which is like, oh, my God, there's very little that's under control sometimes. Like, what is happening? And so being inside of Veep for those years, you realize that a lot of that like, oh, there's – There's so much chaos going on behind the scenes or whatever is just human flawed ego or, you know, compromised ideals or pettiness, vanity, you know, things like that driving the agenda. I think that is stuff I learned on the journey of Veep and then, uh, yeah, simple.
1: Yeah. Did it? I mean, you said it humanized. um that that position, in a sense, did it give you, uh you know, sympathy for someone like Sean Spicer, who was, you know, was being hammered every day in the, in the I have press? very
0: clear thoughts on this. To me, it's a timeline. I don't know what the days are is like I get wanting that job. Like, I think you want to serve that administration or get that job and be at the top of the heap and have a career and. And I do think like for those people who are in the communications world, like that's the that's the best job you could have. Like mm-hmm. you're you're relevant. Like these stories are coming out of your mouth for the day. So that's you know, that's what you want to try to do. But at some point, I don't know, even if you're a conservative, like you can't work there. That's just not a good person you're working for. I don't know. Yeah. I had that's how I see it.
1: Coming up, Matt Walsh talks about the origins of UCB when it was just four young comedians making each other laugh. So I, I want to talk about the Del Close Marathon, the 21st annual, um, moving to L.A. for the first time after 20 years in New York. Um, so uh, I guess first, why, why are you moving this uh, event to, to L.A. for the first time?
0: Well, L.A. has its own charms. It has Hollywood. It has the uh, Star Machine is somewhere in this town where they make stars. So we wanted to be close to the uh, uh, L.A. sexiness. Um, also, we all live here. Me, <laughs> the four of us live here, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's just easier. And then – You and the
1: four, uh, the four UCB me, Matt, founders. Me, Amy, and Ian, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, we all live here in L.A., so it's easier for us to be here. And then the other thing is people don't have to fly to New York, or we don't have to fly people to New York, and we just keep it simple. And we have two theaters here, so I think it was to simplify it. Mm-hmm. In a very, uh, yeah, in a good way. But I'm excited to see what LA's take on it is, because it it was always this down and dirty, rowdy party in the basement of New York, mm-hmm. sweaty and under. Like the facilities were always lacking. Is like people yeah. drinking in hallways or in roof corners <laughs> or you know, getting high somewhere they shouldn't be. And LA is a little nicer in general, so mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see what. Uh, incarnation the festival takes when the rowdy stuff happens
1: yeah i mean del close uh you know for anyone who doesn't know is this kind of mythical figure in the improv world i mean what 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 do you think um what do people not know about him that you that you think that uh they should know about del close
0: i'm not, i'm gonna assume that people don't know that del close is sort of the founding father of long-form improvisation he was a second city performer and director and unfortunately lifelong like heroin addict battled with serious drug addiction but is uh someone i studied with Mm -hmm. the ecb guys all studied with him he was sort of the uh spokesman for why long form could uh exist as a show unto itself and not just a tool to generate improv for sketch shows at second city so there was like this fissure of belief of like improv is worthy of uh, a show unto itself, and then people are like, "It's just a tool. You use it to generate materials, and you mm-hmm. script that material." And-
1: yeah, that was sort of the Second City model, right? Was yes. the, was using improv to create a scripted show. Mm-hmm. Um, so before Del Close, there wasn't really people weren't putting on improv shows in the same way. Do you think
0: long forms? They're yeah. called long forms. There's a thing called the Herald, which is like a structured, you know, opening uh exploration of a word and then three scenes and then an, then what's called a group game and then those three scenes come back in a second beat and then you do another group game and then you sort of in the third beat third visitation of these scenes you sort of try to look for connections to sort of wrap it up and give it a uh, closure or ending mm-hmm. and so that was a formalized version of a long form Nothing scripted nothing is dedicated in terms of like what you're going to say, or how many people could be in that scene, or what the subject matter is, it's true improv. But you start from usually a simple suggestion, and then you go through that. Uh, and they're like 45 minutes usually, or 30 mm-hmm. minutes, something like that.
1: Yeah. So um, you said you know you you studied under Del Close. What did what was that um, what was that experience like for you? What, what do you remember about maybe the first time that you uh, that you met him? And, and
0: he was a notorious crank. He was an ornery obstinate, vulgar, seemingly sexist, or he would say the most like provocateur statements and, yeah. and also brilliant. So I was in complete fear of him. He was sort of like uh, John Hausman in the Paper Chase, old mm-hmm. movie reference, <laughs> but the intimidating professor. Yeah. And he would cut people up. If you tried to be funny, he would make you feel embarrassed and like selfish. He's like, oh, well, you went, took the... You took what was a normal scene. And by the way, everyone does an impression yeah. of Del Close. You took a normal scene and made it about you and your pompous stand-up or your bullshitty stand-up. Congratulations. <laughs> Are you happy now? Do you want to thank your scene partners for letting you take the stage and bore us with your material? Like he would say <laughs> things like that Yeah. after a show or after a scene. But he also, conversely, um, because this, us old guys, when we were starting comedy, there was like Second City was a way to – achieve a living or earn a living but that was about it you'd mm-hmm. have to go to LA or New York but what Dell sort of did or and what UCB has continued to do is it sort of formalized like a comedy education like Dell gave us reading lists he's like if you want to be a professional satirist you should read these five books and you should read the paper every day and he made you approach it in a formalized way even though who knows if it would be a career like nobody makes money improvising in truth very mm-hmm. few, but the formalization of like your profession, he made it, uh, aspirational. He made you want to be that guy and, and life experience. He said you should travel. So he was, and he was always pushing form. So he was like a guru inspiration. He was always pushing form. So it wasn't just a herald, but it was like he would have a fascination with movies and how movies can manipulate ideas. But to do that on stage, you needed to do things like cut to or zoom in. And these were inventive things that became a form called the movie Mm -hmm. that like a team called the family spent time with Dell developing. He also was like obsessed with video games and like how to like express things in the way that the early pre-internet was sort of getting to basically video games. Mm -hmm. So we would do forms where you were trying to tell narrative inside a video game. So pretty trippy stuff. Or you would like chant. Besser told some story how they chanted for like 50 minutes and then he's like, all right, now, how long do you think that was? And they're like, I don't know, 10 minutes? He's like, no, that was 50 minutes. <laughs> and that was an improv lesson or something. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So he was always hungry to innovate, and he inspired uh, anybody that walked in the room, I think.
1: So you started the, the Dell Close Marathon. The first one was in uh, 1998, I believe. Uh, Sounds so 20, about right. 21 years ago. So what was the sort of the idea there um, to – to use his name and, and create this this event that's now been going on for so I think
0: had recently passed. Mm-hmm. So he was uh, a voice on our sketch show, <laughs> Upright Citizens Braid sketch show. He was like the voice over in the beginning. So I think to pay tribute to him, we threw a festival that was going to be like 24 hours or all night, basically, mm-hmm. at our theater that had just opened on 22nd Street. So we just called some people and some Chicago people were in town guys like I think Pess was there who was basically a second city guy did a little IO and we all just got to, and then the whole UCB community uh, my buddy Pete Holney was kind of like an improv Olympic guy we all ended up on stage doing a series of shows and we found I believe some old clips of Dell to make him part of the festival we would play a clip from some weird TV show del did and then we would do uh some improv off of that mm-hmm. you know connecting yeah. him to the live theater
1: um and then last year though so the last year you did it in new york um there was a big show at carnegie hall um where you the founders and and some other people including i think tina fey and i'm not sure who else was in that uh, show rachel Dratch, horatio sands yeah did um an ascat so yep. can you explain uh, what what an ascat is and how that uh kind of got started
0: Askat is our oldest form. It's basically when we landed in New York, we had two stage shows that we had run in Chicago forever and then a trunk full of props. And then we also started doing our, a free improv show on Sunday nights at this little theater. And the improv show is called Askat, And Askat basically is a long form that you get a guest monologist. They tell some stories off of a suggestion. They just free associate, give us details. We listen to those stories like six or seven performers on the back wall. Initially, it was just the four UCB members and a couple writers from Conan or SNL Mm -hmm. with us Chicago dudes. And after they tell their monologue, they take a seat on a chair and then we do a bunch of scenes that sort of deconstruct elements of that monologue or explore something that was funny or interesting and just do scene work. And then at some point, we bring the monologist back out and they can continue to tell another story related to scenes we did or something they wanted to continue in the first monologue. Or we can get another suggestion and then that's two we do two halves of that. Mm-hmm. That's an ASCAT.
1: So what was it what was it like doing that at Carnegie Hall? I mean, that must have been kind of a, a big moment.
0: It was a time marker. It was like we landed in New York in ninety-six and we started doing our free show on Sunday nights, maybe three months later, two months later, whenever we found a theater that would have us. And it was instantly free show sold out. So it's not really sold out, but it was instantly full and the line was around the block. And that was the thing that really connected with our fans and the people who are now in our lives. Like all those people who saw the early ASCAT shows are now people like Paul Shear and Rob Hubel and Mm -hmm. Owen Burke and their performers and Katie Dippold and their writers. Like So that 20 years also was filled with our friends who we had taught improv to and they had sort of come up with us or come up a little after us. And that gave uh, a retrospective feel to The Evening. You know, and so that was a really wonderful and obviously Carnegie Hall is the storied. like it's the there are certain things I've done in my life that my mom likes and she Mm -hmm. loves when I'm on a commercial (laughs) because she can say, did you see the, you know, the breakfast sausage commercial that Matt's on? (laughs) So she has something to show her friends and. Uh, she loved that she could tell her friends I was at Carnegie Hall and she mm-hmm. got to go to the show. And then the best part of Carnegie Hall is right when the show's over, I was bringing my mom out to take a picture on stage and the, and the, the stage hands and you get off stage, get off the stage. <laughs> Someone could get hurt, get out of here, right? And they just like shoo you like with anger. Because <laughs> we got another show tomorrow yeah, night, yeah. folks. But it's so special and meaningful to you. But yeah. once it's over, they yeah, don't care. It's over. Yeah, it's over.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure when you when you started this group, Upright Citizens Brigade, you you couldn't have imagined that you would be uh, performing at Carnegie Hall. Uh, you know, 20 years later.
0: <laughs> no, never in a million years. Yeah. Absolutely not. We started it as a clubhouse. We were doing shows at that that improv show at Solo Arts on the fifth floor of a rickety building. And then we found a strip club that Giuliani shut down because we were teaching so many classes. We were able to like Mm -hmm. pay rent and do our own shows and leave our props there and like have these people who were beginning to be funny do their shows Mm -hmm. because we were directing them anyways or or coaching them. So it was a simple like clubhouse. And we could do what we wanted to do because those shows, those ass cats generated material for season two and season three of uh, the sketch show.
1: Yeah. It was all very practical. I remember hearing a story. um, At one point, were you performing in an old uh, massage parlor, or Uh, well, the theater
0: was uh, a strip club, or and then upstairs was kind of like where you could go for massages or whatever else happened upstairs. Massages, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So you would have people kind of wander in. uh, Absolutely true. Yeah,
0: sailors, a lot of Orthodox Jewish men. (laughs) It was funny, and it was like, and then they would always pretend to like. Look at a flyer. Oh, this is why I'm here. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, okay. Well, maybe I'll. I'll. And they would put
0: the flyer <laughs> down and leave because there was no naked people. Yeah, no naked women.
1: <laughs> um, so when when you you started the group um, with Matt Besser, Ian Roberts, and Amy Poehler, uh where where were you in your in your life at that at that point? Where was I? That's
0: bit where yeah. was I in my life in your, I was, in your
1: life and career. You know, what what was what was sort of happening at, at that time? When that I sort of met you...
0: Besser and Amy and yeah. Ian, I guess like Chicago for me was I did psychology right out of college. I was gonna be a psychologist and then I lived with like four other people in a comedy ghetto <laughs> doing sketches at night. So I right out of college I was like for two years I was working hard during the day on a psych ward, taking some classes towards a psych degree, uh, a master's degree. And then at night doing filming and sketches and running around Chicago, burning the candle at both ends. And then at some point I knew psychology was just too depressing and too difficult. So I kind of dedicated myself to be, you know, a comedian, which means, okay, I just need to be willing to be poor and I need a cheap rent and I'll just keep doing shows. And so I started doing places like the annoyance theater Study with a guy named McNapier. Around that time, I think I probably met Besser and we were doing shows at this place called The Roxy. The Roxy was like a stand-up anything club music, also sketch. People like Emo Phillips and Judy Tenuta came out mm-hmm. of there. Besser and I kind of met, started film he had a camera, we started filming things all the time. Shortly thereafter I met Ian and then a year or two after that I met Amy. And in that era of like us all meeting uh, UCB was doing shows. I was doing shows at annoyance I would do. And then Ian and I became, uh, touring partners in second city. So that was my first paying comedy job in 1994. And so I toured the country with Ian Roberts, Horatio Sands and a couple other people. And, uh, that's kind of like where my life began. So, mm-hmm. and then UCB moved to, uh, New York, in ninety-six that was me, Besser and uh Amy. And then in ninety eight we got a show in a theater, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean that must have been a big decision to take it to New York. Um was that uh was that a hard decision?
0: It was for me. I'm from Chicago, so that was my home and I have a very you know, pretty close family and all my siblings are still there and uh so it was like a sit down dinner with the four of us and Ian, I think at that time was just about married and it was. It was a big sit down, and we kind of agreed to a six month. Let's let's either go to New York or L A. Mm-hmm. We, we decided New York because New York fed audiences. Mm-hmm. There, there was mm-hmm. more like theater going audience, and we felt like we could build build a following as opposed to L A. is a showcase, and then you're gone. Yeah. Game. So we chose New York and uh, booked two theaters or one theater and did just hit the ground running with two shows and then performed in all these. Little like uh, variety shows, Luna Lounge or David Wayne and the State Guys had a show called Stella or like the Sklar Brothers had a early show. So you just make a name for yourself in New York every night.
1: And I mean, I don't know if you viewed it this way, but was it were you kind of setting yourself up in opposition in any way to something like Second City or or these more established places? And how did you how did you want it to be different from from those institutions that already existed?
0: I think Second City, when I was coming up, uh, was the institution. Mm -hmm. So they were the thing to rebel against. So places like The Annoyance, for example, started by a guy who directed shows at Second City. He just wanted to have a freer process and not worry.
1: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
0: About like tourist laughs, as he would, as to say it simply. Like sometimes mm-hmm. their shows would play to Simpler Chicago. You know, just referencing the name of the assistant mayor can get you a laugh in that room. And that's not necessarily for a young, angry person in comedy. I- interesting. You know, mm-hmm. you want to be more subversive so a lot of these other theater groups improv olympic where dell was with sharna uh tried to be a little more subversive and more reaction and certainly improv friendlier uh and so i don't know what the question was i guess
1: well yeah how did you how did you want what you were doing to be uh different from what what they were what second city was doing
0: in truth a lot of it was i think misguided you knew what you liked and you were figuring out how to do it. So we Mm -hmm. did some shows that alienated audiences because they were so aggressive and some shows that were really funny. But we knew, I mean, for me personally, I don't know, like it's kind of judgmental like because you don't, you know, like people like probably Steve Carell was on main stage at Second City when I was in Chicago thinking I was doing better work. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) So there was talent at Second City, but the structure of – Second city was very restrictive in the subject matter, and you couldn't go over the edge because mm-hmm. they were sort of like tourist-driven. Mm-hmm. So I think we just wanted to do edgier material, whatever whatever we felt was pushing the line. That's what we wanted to do.
1: Mm-hmm. And is there was there a early kind of breakthrough in that sense where you did something where you said, oh, well, this is this is uh, representative of that edgy material that we. That we want to do, because I know there were kind of a lot of outrageous, uh, you know, whether you want to call them pranks or uh, things that you guys did that, that kind of tricked the audience in, in some way.
0: I think the audience interaction stuff was pretty cutting edge or certainly in Chicago. Nobody was doing it. I think having a sketch show with a theme like the underlying theme of Upright Citizens Brigade. So you have like sketches, but you're also linked by this underground subversive organization, I think was mm-hmm. different. So mm-hmm. we were finding ways and also taking characters from our sketch show, like Besser played a Unabomber. And then we had hidden camera footage of him mailing a package at the U.S. post office <laughs> as dressed as that sketch of the mm-hmm. Unabomber. Uh, we had like weird we did this in New York years later, but it was Ian. We had a we had a product called Santa Liqueur, mm-hmm. which was unconscious or whatever. Basically, marketing children to to be early drugs <laughs> by associating <laughs> Santa with the liqueur, and we put Ian outside of F A O Schwartz mm-hmm. offering free samples of Santa Liqueur, not to kids, and they got so mad at him. But that was a sketch from our sketch show. And then we took the character and put him in the real world. We were doing that stuff in Chicago. A lot of like early attempts at like virtual reality where we would put goggles on somebody and they would, we, we get the audience to create like, okay, now you're in the ocean or whatever. Mm-hmm. The, the audience might convince them they're in the ocean or take them outside and put them on a car ride, film the car ride and then play the video. When we got back, <laughs> they would do stuff like that. Uh, so that was kind of pushing it. There was a show called Thunderball that like, Besser, Ian, I wasn't in that version of a show early on, but it was like a new sport. I was in the sport, which is like cars can drive, gun. there's a gun circle, dogs can roam the field. So we filmed this crazy sport, uh, Mad Maxi kind of mm. feeling sport. And those kind of things, I think, weren't happening at Second City. They mm. weren't introducing video clips in their yeah. show. And so there were ways we knew. And like our heroes at the time, too, were kids in the hall, I think. they're. Yeah. They were a gestalt. They were a group mind. It wasn't just like Second City was all-star teams, mm-hmm. and they would take the best person and, and create diversity, also gender concerns and things like that. But they were, they were just putting – we had like a group mind. Like UCB had an attitude and an edge, and we all sort of like a band had a thing that was better, the four of us, than four individuals. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of what we were trying – and figuring it out, like, we, you know, f- many failed attempts. One thing I always remember about UCB is, like, we did so many shows where we put them up before they were audience ready. Yeah. just <laughs> And then invite a friend or two or just regular audience, and it was too long. But every – just keep learning. Next show, we'd make it five minutes shorter, and it would be better, but still probably shouldn't have been on stage yet, mm. and we would do it again. And just said, uh, you know, you're bulletproof and young, and you, you have an attitude, so you just push through that stuff.
1: Um, and then, so not long after you got to New York, you got the um, the Comedy Central sketch show, yeah. um, which lasted for a few years.
0: Donnie is the first documented case of what we have labeled magnumus oblivio phallusitis. In layman's terms, that is uh, having an enormous penis, which you are unaware of.
1: Yeah, so I uh, just want to show you some of the safety devices I've developed for little Donnie, helping lead a more uh, normal life. Ah. I have to say that I don't like these devices. I, I think they call attention to his disease. I think they make him feel different. And, you know, his, his penis is really not that big. All right, honey, his <laughs> penis accounts for over 13% of his total body weight. Okay, you know what? We don't need to talk about this. Mommy, i got a chocolate milk mustache! <laughs> what was sort of the the conception uh, behind that show at the time? Because it was more sketch than than the sort of... Long, you weren't doing the type of long form improv that you're. No, doing it was on sketch. Stage.
0: It was always to be sketch. We we never wanted to do an improv show on TV or in the early days, at least. Um,
1: do you think that would have worked, or do you think? I mean, well, do you think it, can, it could have worked.
0: It can work. We've made a couple specials. I don't know. Improv's tricky. Like, I don't have an answer for how to capture. My gut is like improv has to be shot in a very like choose your own adventure way maybe mm-hmm. to make it work. I'm not sure yet how to, how, how to yeah. shoot improv, but we've made a couple uh, shows that are funny. And obviously live, it works uh, amazing. But what we did for the TV shows, we borrowed the structure of the Herald. So one thing we did is we would write our, the first season was basically all these sketches we had done in Chicago and in New York at various open mic nights and variety shows. So we had a lot of material, but you we would organize them thematically. And then we would sort of, this would be our restaurant show. This is our mafia show because it seemed to have a theme. And then we would th- think of a prank that could happen in that world, take a character and put him in the real world and film it. But also in the way that the Herald has first beat of three scenes, second beat, mm-hmm. third beat where it all comes together. We did that same structure, much like a Tarantino movie where he, where he launches like mm-hmm. 12 characters and lo and behold, they yeah, all intersect yeah. at the end. We were trying to do that. In a half hour mm-hmm. in a sketch show, so delivering yep. sketch, also this overlay of the secret organization called the UCB, <laughs> and then also sort of closure by inner strange and surprising coincidence or connection.
1: yeah, I mean that's that's an ambitious uh, undertaking very ambitious yeah <laughs> and running
0: a theater and running a theater yeah. and teaching classes on the weekend mm-hmm. like we were so that was always fire. kind of part
1: of it the the classes aspect of the of, of UCB came from from all the way back then
0: before we got a theater what we ended up doing is we would teach classes and then ian was our accountant and he would put the money in his wallet and then we would <laughs> use that money to like oh let's make a short movie now mm-hmm. let's go to la for one show where the head of fox casting is going to see us and maybe give us a sketch show which never mm-hmm. which never happens but we would do things like that mm-hmm. or props you know buy mm-hmm. props for the monday night bit we do at luna lounge i need two pizzas and i need a case <laughs> of beer all right ian take it from the accountant.
1: Um, so at a certain point, uh, that show, the sketch show ended and I, I don't know the exact timeline, but Amy Poehler went to SNL. Um, yes. not, was that after it's not, that's not why the show ended, right? I mean, she, no, we were done. Yeah.
0: We've ended in 2000 is probably our last
1: yeah, and, season. And and then, started, I don't know when I she started. I think she started 2001. Yeah. Cause I know the the nine 11 was right around her was right around her first, uh, episode. Was it? Yeah, I think so.
0: I was at the Daily Show when
1: 9/11 yeah. happened. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess we can we we go to SNL next. But what was what was that like uh, being at the at the Daily Show when when 9/11 happened? You know,
0: it was it was insane. It was just I lived at 22nd and 7th, and then Ian happened to wake me up that morning, and I checked the news. I'm like, whoa, I'm yeah. Just completely depressed, and I went downstairs, and I had a bike, and my roommate at the time and I rode as close. For some reason, I went down to it on my bike, mm-hmm. which is dumb. And got as close as we could to the barricades and just saw everyone leaving and spent the day trying to donate blood up at the blood bank by Lincoln Center. And, yeah, I don't know. Nobody has a good 9-11 story. Do you you remember the
1: the first time you kind of had to do uh, comedy after 9-11? Well, UCB
0: probably did – it was 9-11 on a Tuesday. Mm -hmm. I think we might have gone up Thursday. And I think – Wow. I think Letterman might have announced he was going up – thursday mm-hmm. and i think we were like all right let's do a show and what was i was in the room when we first because it nine eleven is an event for me that i thought the world will be forever changed mm-hmm. you know just nothing will be the same and so to see a show like two days after that in our little improv theater every scene whatever they referenced felt like they were talking about nine eleven. Mm-hmm. you know what i mean you could say dog and then you're thinking of the dog sniffing around mm-hmm. the rubble to find a survivor like Anything they did conjured up nine eleven yeah so it was very strange, but it was also people trying to move on in the only way they could like we don't have any skills we're not we're not gonna rescue anyone we can't drive steel out of the city so let's
1: do comedy mm-hmm. for each other
0: at the very least
1: yeah um so so yeah after after the UCB show uh, Amy went to SNL was did all of you audition for SNL at, at different points, or did did that kind of did it was that just uh, her, or did did you ever audition for SNL?
0: I never auditioned for SNL. I would assume like Amy was probably on the radar because she's a standout and she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Like she had both uh, qualities, and I think it probably, I bet she was on the radar when we were mm-hmm. on UCB. So when UCB was no longer going, I'm sure they said, "Would you like to audition for our show?" Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Was that something that was that a, a dream of yours to to be on SNL, or was that something that you that you wanted?
0: I think by the time I got done with UCB or done with The Daily Show and thought like, oh, what if I did SNL? I was too old. Like mm-hmm. at some point, I'm like, yeah, that's not for me anymore. I can't. Because after The Daily Show, I ended up in LA. Like, yeah, it was sort of. So no, I never auditioned for SNL. Uh, they didn't come knocking on my door either. Mm-hmm. So. Who knows? Yeah.
1: I did see that you you made a couple of uh cameos uh w- w- under Adam mcKay uh in, in a couple of uh, weird shorts weird shorts yeah, yeah. well Isn't that funny <laughs> how did that happen he just called you up and yeah said,
0: he's he's old school UCB yeah. he came out of Chicago with us and uh like many of our friends Adam was a dear person and would employ us and you could be three get 300 bucks by standing in the background <laughs> covered in blood for his commercial parody or whatever yeah. so it was always welcome, and mm-hmm. the same with the Conan guys. They would they would put us in their silly sketches, and that's what paid the rent.
1: Yeah. Um, so you know, UCB from those early days has obviously gotten so enormous and so influential, and you guys have theaters in L.A. and New York and everything. I mean, how how involved uh, you know are you day to day in that in the what's become really this big. Uh, institution like maybe like second city used to be when you were uh, yeah when you were coming up
0: yeah in some ways we have become the institution it's true uh i'm very involved i wish i w- didn't have to be a <laughs> uh, businessman is not my my best suit. Yeah, you
1: didn't set out to be a business i did not man. set out
0: to be a businessman but i'm also very proud of what we've created we've we've sort of in the way that dell taught me like oh you can be a professional comedian improviser Uh, I think UCB has taught people, like, here's some things you can learn. Here's, like, a structure. Here's a community. You can hook up with people who are also making things and filming things. And uh, I like that we can turn people on to this art form uh, called improv. Because I remember when I did my first improv class in Chicago at a place called Players Workshop of Second City. It was the only place in Chicago teaching improv back in 1986, let's
1: say.
0: It was like a drug it was understanding like oh my god this nothing makes me happier than this thing mm-hmm. so i like that we've created a place where people can turn on to that drug
1: yeah and it's i mean it's become this incredible uh breeding ground in a sense for for comedians on yeah. snl on on all across you know tv and everything so does yeah that, do you how do you do you are you proud of that uh <laughs> that that legacy that you guys have have created there uh, uh, i am and i and i like
0: too that it uh it, if I was a kid interested in comedy, I would be all over the UCB is all I can mm-hmm. say. Like you can go in there on a Tuesday night and see if whatever, $7 show and Pat Oswalt comes in and does 20 minutes for no reason other mm-hmm. than he's working on something or he wants to be silly with his friends. Like the amount of talent – he's one example. But yeah. So the amount of talent that comes through there is ridiculous. And I also think it's like a – cool like learning community like we have these q a's where like i'll rope dave mandel to come in mm-hmm. to the inner sanctum which is like our student union and i'll interview him about improvised television and mm-hmm. the art of improv in television or writing for television like so he's like a world-class showrunner mm-hmm. on a saturday afternoon you can pop in for five bucks i don't know whatever and like and then ask that guy questions it's not like comic-con or anything mm-hmm. it's like so there's there's events like that always happening like the I'm very proud of those FYC panels that when the horse race happens, like Brooklyn nine, nine, I snuck my son Emmett into that one (laughs) too because I have a key. I snuck him in, but like, you know, those shows, you know, the good place or AP bio uh, and you see the banners around Los Angeles. I'm very proud of that. We're sort of a library of comedy too. Like Mm -hmm. we, 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 I think we put out a lot of good stuff or educate people in like, in good ways.
1: Yeah, I mean the the flip side of that incredible legacy in, is that over the years, you know, you have faced some criticism for not paying performers in certain cases. Do you have any, you know, response to that? Uh, what what people say about that?
0: People saying, "Why don't you pay performers?" I guess it's just not our business model.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're you're it's it's classes and people get get stage time is sort of the idea there, right?
0: Yeah, and the hope is that. People catch a break and make a living in show business or mm-hmm. they can uh, uh, network. I guess you're sort of networking there too. Like mm-hmm. my, my hope for anyone who comes through there is like occasionally we throw kids an industrial gig. Like you can write a terrible industrial for Gillette razors mm-hmm. and you'll get paid 500 bucks to write that copy. Like yeah. those kind of things are paid, but to do an improv show or a sketch show, it still has that gymnasium uh, learning mentality. Yeah, and, and then for people who are like, don't want money like Patton or Sarah Silverman mm-hmm. or yeah. Scott Ackerman. They just like the nature of the audiences that are built into that room. Like mm-hmm. it's, we keep, we try to keep the prices low and in terms of performers, I still think we treat our performers really well cause we, they don't pay for their, uh, you know, rehearsals. When we came out of Chicago, you had to pay every time you had a lighting guy in the room yeah. and you had to pay him and then you had to guarantee tickets. So, and then you couldn't leave props mm-hmm. and there was no support and they didn't, they didn't treat improv or sketch like it was worthy theater. It had to be long and dramatic. Mm-hmm. So I think we try to serve people in that way.
1: Yeah. Um. So you, uh, you have a, a film coming up that I wanted to ask about um, starring opposite Isla Fisher in un- <laughs> Unplugging and you, you uh, wrote yes. on this uh, film as well.
0: We haven't filmed it yet. We're hopefully getting out. No, it's a fair question. Uh, In August, yeah. Yeah. So Basically, a couple has to save their marriage, so they put their devices down for the weekend. No iPhone, no cell phone. (laughs) Uh, And they go to like a resort, resort resorty slash like just wilderness cabin. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's very stressful for them. And then they get a little freaked out because like the Wi-Fi goes down and then the power goes out. So then they think like, oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> is the grid down? Have have we been invaded? They get a little too scared.
1: Yeah, and yeah. you you're a writer on that. Yeah, as me well? and my,
0: a buddy of mine, Brad Morris, who's mm-hmm. a super funny Chicago guy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We wrote that.
1: Um, was that did that come out of a uh, wanting to talk about uh, unplugging from from devices and uh, social media and all that? Well,
0: what's funny is like on date night with my wife, I'll make her. I'll try to make her drive because yeah. she she'll say I'm always on my phone, but she is always on her phone. <laughs> And it forces her to like we have better conversations. You in, know what I mean? Like it's car, date yeah. night. Like yeah. you can't because if if I'm driving, she'll be like yeah. rolling social media or like she'll be <laughs> and, or she'll be working. You know, planning things for the kids. Or mm. know, it's not like all goof off. But so it is definitely. I think it's in everyone's life. I think it's an yeah. interesting thing we're gonna have to figure out. Yeah. Obviously, cause there's all these studies that say that, you know, it's bad for you and the frenetic sort of attention span. It doesn't do well and you can't, you shouldn't be doing it before you sleep cause it keeps you awake. Mm-hmm. And you don't sleep as deep. Or if you have it by your head in the room when you're sleeping, it's really bad for you cause it does actually keep your brain aroused somehow. So. Yeah, I think it's something we all have to deal with. And I, so I guess I am a little interested in it. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I mean, is there, is there anything else, uh, you know, besides that movie coming up that you're, that you're excited about, that you're, that you're working on? Especially now that, that Veep is over. I mean, it must, you know, it's, it's bittersweet, I'm sure. But you also freeze up time to do other things that maybe you couldn't <laughs> have done uh, when you had that show.
0: I'll hopefully be writing more, writing something with my wife that's loosely based on her dad and my dad. One being like super lefty and the other one being super mm. conservative.
1: Uh, Sounds promising. Yeah, it's a For good comedy. It's a good world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: and then I don't know, a lot of kids stuff. We have three kids, uh, do, and just doing a little writing. I wrote a short story the other day that I'm want to finish. Yeah, but nothing, uh, no big projects other than the the movie that we will hopefully be filming mm-hmm. in August. Yeah, and the Delco's marathon. Yeah. Which is in June?
1: Yeah, are there any um, are there any shows or people involved that you want to that you want to shout out? Uh?
0: <laughs> we do a show called Director's Commentary, and uh, we pretend like we're the cast and crew of uh, any television or movie thing that you might find on DVD. So mm-hmm. we'll be doing that again for. We've probably been doing that show for twenty years. There's also the bit shows that. Uh, they're the fifty minute late night slots that start at like two in the morning on Friday or mm. two in the morning on Saturday. And uh they're they're usually thin premises like uh to catch a predator prov where they just keep <laughs> capturing a predator. They'll do a quick scene and then John Stossel will come out and say, You've you're you've been trapped, and then they'll just <laughs> clean the stage and they'll do another one. Do you know what I mean? They're very yeah. silly or they do nineteen seventy-six Mets and it's just introducing Mets the whole 15 minutes. is just introducing different Mets and people mm-hmm. come out. There's a show called match game that gets rowdy. So, uh, yeah, those are, the, those are the highlights. Ask cat. There'll be a, a couple good ask cats. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to checking out uh, some of the shows. Yeah, so, it should uh, yeah. be fun. I'm excited. Um, so before we wrap up, uh, one thing I want to do is kind of uh, these are all people that we've we've talked about a little bit in this conversation, but go through a list of of some of these early uh, people you worked with in the early days at UCB and just see if there's a, a story or a, a memory uh, <laughs> that kind of jumps out when I mention their name. Uh, so first is uh, Matt Besser. When what is there a uh, <laughs> A memory that, that jumps out for The thing that you? came
0: up the other day uh, was reminded of is I met Besser at a comedy club in Chicago and he gave me like – he was just out of college or something. He gave me like – he saw I was funny on stage. He's like, oh, they, oh, I'll do a sketch with this. So he gave me like three sketches he thought were really funny. Mm-hmm. And he's like, read these. We'll do them here at this open mic. And I never read them. And then like three <laughs> weeks later, he's like, did you read them? I'm like, no, I'm sorry. He's like <laughs> – can I get him back? <laughs> so that was like our first meeting. Yeah. I blew off his sketches. <laughs>
1: did that, uh, did that continue the dynamic between you guys? Yeah, uh... It never, we got <laughs> off
0: footed. We've never been able to get past
1: that. Um, and then next is uh, Ian Roberts.
0: Ian was like, uh, one of the best, like straight men for the classic term of like providing logic and improv. So I think I've, Learned to improv I've spent so much time improvising with Ian. I think I've learned to be like a better improviser because he's just really good, one of the best at like extemporaneously justifying anything weird that happens on stage or understanding quickly what a scene is about mm-hmm. so that's sort of like a Ian memory mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's always into fit some phase of fitness. Like he he (laughs) he always works out, and he's always got some interesting powder or yeah. Was that always the case? Yeah, yeah. Throughout, he'll be. There was a summer where he was like biking everywhere, and he got super fit. And then Mm -hmm. somebody hit him on his bike, and he's like, "I'm not riding a bike in New York anymore." Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Amy Polar, we talked about, but what um, what were sort of your first impressions of her when you when you met her? I
0: honestly, I think I met Amy on stage for my Second City Touring Company audition. Mm -hmm. So I met her. We were both auditioning, and they just randomly pair. And I remember we did a scene together. i kind of maybe known her from the scene, but I'd never met her. Mm. Long story short, she was really funny. And I'm like, oh, my God, uh, this gal's really funny. This gal, this person (laughs) is really funny. So that was my first impression of Amy's. Like, she's really funny. And then – uh. I guess when we started working and doing scenes with her, she was always really cool. I don't know. <laughs> is, that, is that a good first impression?
1: <laughs> yeah, cool and funny, yep. Amy Puller. Yeah, uh, that's on brand. <laughs> Adam McKay, um, who has gone on to become this uh, massive uh, film director, and uh, you know, but he started out with you guys as well um, in Chicago, which I think a lot of people don't uh, don't know. Um, so, what was what was he like in those early days?
0: Adam was a force of nature who came out of Philly into the Chicago improv scene by way of, the, uh, there was a guy named Rick Roman who was like an early upright citizens pack kind of guy. Mm-hmm. And he was a buddy of Adam's and Adam was just a, a breath of fresh air and also like his own force, you know, brilliant, brilliant mind and really good improviser and very subversive and very like aggressive sense of humor. And I think he inspired a lot of people. Uh, and I remember like, He couldn't just make you laugh. He was so goddamn funny. But doing a lot of crazy pranks where we would call pizza places to scam pizzas and stuff like that. Mm. He had a lot of like balls. (laughs) Pardon my language. But yeah, he was brave. So Uh I remember I think of that when we had no money. I think of like McKay calling into a pizza place down the street and then me having to walk in and get it as his (laughs) assistant or something.
1: (laughs) Um, and then last is uh Horatio sands, who was also very involved in those in those early days as well um i know he he's was kind of known for some of his gonzo uh yeah um gonzo is th- a really good way
0: he was i toured with him at second city and I also performed with him and kind of physically fearless and uh yeah a real talent just always been a real because like, he's a really great actor. And, uh, but Gonzo and unpredictable and would, I don't know, do crazy shit at <laughs> yeah. parties. Like, what are you doing? Oh no, no, we got to leave. <laughs> he, but also he... really, I remember one night we were up on a roof at a improv party and it was like, I don't know how we got up there, but it was an A frame house. Mm-hmm. So we climbed up the steep roof just to sit on the top of this peak in Chicago, like two stories up yeah at a house party. And uh I think the cops were like yelling it because we were- si- by the end of it we were singing, <laughs> and the cops were like, "You guys have to get down right now, so i don't blame him for that, but i I always have fun with him and he was uh he was in my wedding he was one of my groomsmen oh
1: nice um so the the final thing that I ask everyone on the show is uh what's the what's the last thing that made you laugh really hard? Um, think of it as a kind of recommendation for listeners could be uh something you you saw on t v or um, at a, a live show.
0: Well, much of comedy for middle-aged people is about their children. Mm-hmm. So my son Emmett the other day was at some camp and they're doing icebreakers where you meet people, and the is an it was a pet camp and basically. The teacher, the counselor was like, okay, everybody pick an animal and say what you sound like or whatever. So, my name's Tina. I'm a cat. I, Meow. And then it got to Emmett. I'm Bob. I'm a dog. Roof-roof. And then it got to Emmett. And Emmett's thing was like, uh, hi, I'm a whale. I'm from New Jersey. Does this blubber make me look fat? <laughs> it was a funny bit, right? Yeah. And my wife told me that story over the phone. And I cackled. <laughs> dear sweet Emmett is really funny. He's a lovely boy. See? Solid bit, yeah, yeah. So that's the last thing that comes to mind, yeah. or one of the things that comes. So maybe to mind. he has a
1: future in comedy, following his dad's uh, footsteps. yeah He might,
0: yeah. He's in the right <laughs> town for
1: it. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Matt. This was great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much to Matt Walsh for being my guest on today's show. The Dell Close Marathon will run from Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in LA. You can get tickets now at DellCloseMarathon.com. If you enjoy this show, please, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. The Last Laugh is distributed by Himalaya Media for The Daily Beast. It's produced by Jason Smith and Scott Porch for Starburns Audio and edited by Mackenzie Mazell. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find the show every week on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.
0: I think we know the best
1: story. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50